Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and joining me today is musician Allison Dennis. Hi, Allison. Hi, Will. How are you? Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Allison, I found out about you because somehow I ended up at one of your shows. You were performing as Dr. Something. I don't know if this is what your band always does or if it was just for that particular show, but it seemed to be TriMet themed. Yeah, it was. I think that was the single release for Beaverton TC, which was a song about the Beaverton Transit Center. Okay, nice. <laughs> and you had backup singers that were the different, like Red Line, Blue Line. Oh yeah, I think that was that was the EP release. Yeah, okay. because we yeah had the had the coordinated outfits. <laughs> yeah. So it's not always like that. I just lucked out. Usually bigger shows, if I do a release, I'll have like the full band with the backup singers and then bass player and, and drummer. I do also play solo sometimes. I do a lot of like looping stuff when I play solo, with like keyboards and vocals and clarinet. But yeah, that one was a whole band deal. So yeah, that was well, it was a lot of, of fun. Special ones. <laughs> yeah. And don't get me wrong. I, I do love a lot of bands that are just like guitars and basses and looking cool and being cool. But at some point, I feel like I've seen a lot of that. (laughs) It's just really fun and refreshing to see a band that's like, I don't know, maybe doing something a little sillier, a little weirder. I just had a really good time at the show. And so I don't know, that's why I reached out. I said, you know, this person seems like they might be fun and maybe into some modern rock. I don't know. Cool. We'll We'll find out. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell me why transit related songs? I think just because it's something that I haven't really heard a lot of popular songs or rock songs about transit and mass transit. And I think it's something that's, it's definitely an, a very important part of urban life, which should be more a more important and more well-funded part of urban life in North America. I mean, that was part of it. I don't drive. So yeah, just like bicycling and walking in transit or something that like are always kind of at the forefront of my mind. And something that I don't see a lot of in pop culture. And so I'm like, what is that? There should be more. I mean, just off the top of my head, I can think of a fair number of train songs, but they always seem to be in the context of I'm leaving my love behind or something like that. Yeah, it's mostly like, yeah, intercity travel or or like stuff about hopping freight trains. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Which definitely has a lot of romance and Mm -hmm. pathos to it. Yeah. So I kind of understand why that's. That shows up a lot. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you know, way to veer away from the themes of love. And, you know. <laughs> uh, well, I think there's plenty of those songs already written. <laughs> well, let's get into it. We're talking about March of 1992. Do you have any idea what you were up to in March of 1992? March of 92, I think I would have been nine years old. Um, okay, so it's probably a little specific. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know if you were listening to music? That would make you, what, like a third grader or something, right? Yeah, I think, I think it was in third grade that year. I probably was listening mostly to stuff in my parents' record collection mm-hmm. and whatever was on the radio. I had friends who were obsessed with New Kids on the Block, and I kind of didn't get it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it always bugged me that, like, so many of their choruses were just like, oh, oh, oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, that's, that's I, really funny. I guess funny. I was already yeah. a snob at nine years old. Probably about the same time I showed up to school. We were having like whatever, the third grade talent show, whatever it was. And a bunch of my best friends, surprised to me, they all did a choreographed dance to New Kids on the Blocks, mm. The Right Stuff. Mm. But I remember feeling really left out. 
like mm. all these all these guys that are my friends like somehow they're all doing a choreographed dance together and i didn't mm-hmm. know anything about it that's the the first and last time i i listened <laughs> to new kids on the block that's funny but yeah that's what i was up to not not modern rock yeah, I feel like I, most of the rock music that I was listening to was like my parents' old records. Most of the modern music was what was on the radio where I was and like my parents' old Beatles records and stuff. Sure. A lot of people say that. <laughs> <laughs> parents' Beatles records. Was there any particular album or band that really turned you on to music and made you want to perform? Or was that more of like a an organic, gradual result of playing instruments as a kid and things like that? I mean, it was definitely sort of a mixture of that. I played clarinet and band, and I was in, in choirs since I was a child, like church choirs and school choirs. So that definitely was like a big part of just like, you know, participating in music as a community activity. But I also feel like the Simon and Garfunkel uh, Wednesday morning 3 a.m. album, the like all acoustic one had a big impact on like singing and songwriting for me, I think, because um, it's one of those albums from like the mid 60s when things were coming out in stereo and it was like really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much hard panning on everything. And on that one, like Art Garfunkel's hard pan to one side and Paul Simon was hard pan to the other. And so my brother and I, we just like turn the stereo all the way to the left or the right to learn the different parts. And so we learned all the songs on that album and would sing them together. And that was like really instructive to like writing melodies and harmonies to me and like how it, how they fit together. Sure. It's kind of a cool learning tool. Yeah, <laughs> that was neat. unintentional. Yeah. I've, I've heard that album quite a few times, but mm-hmm. I'd never, never realized it was in stereo like that. Mm-hmm. I need to get better speakers, yeah. I think. <laughs> I mean, there might have been, I think it was probably one of those records where there was a mono version and also a stereo version. So if you have the mono, it wouldn't have been, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. Noticeable. All right, well, like I said, this is March 1992. We don't have any number one songs this month to listen to because the song Hit by the Sugar Cubes ended up staying in the top spot at number one for five weeks straight. So that was the end of February and then all of March. So we're going to have to jump down to number two. And the first one we're going to hear from is a band called The Lightning Seeds. Last time we heard them was in 1990 with their song Pure. And this time we're going to hear a track from their 1992 album, Sense. This is their second album. And this album cover, to me, I don't know if you've seen it, it looks like you ever seen Journey album covers? Yeah. Yeah, it looks like that, but crazier. It's okay. like the, like the space, spaceships, yeah. like big flaming fireballs. Like it, it's all of that combined I've into one. I've never seen it. We're going to hear a song called Life of Riley. This was the first single from the album, and it reached number two on the modern rock charts. It also reached number 28 in the UK, and it scraped the bottom of the US Hot 100. It reached mm. number 98. <laughs> making it uh, their second and final U.S. pop hit. Mm-hmm. Although I guess I'm using the term hit pretty loosely there. <laughs> Supposedly, this song is about lead singer Ian Brody's son, Riley. Hmm. All right, well, here it is. Life of Riley by the Lightning Seeds.
My first thought upon hearing it was that it's very heavily produced, mm-hmm. not 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 in a bad way. I don't think it's overproduced, but it was one thing that struck me as like, wow, this is really like intense production for like a guitar rock song. And uh, when I looked it up, I guess the lead songwriter guy was a producer. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And I guess he worked with Echo and the Bunnymen. And uh, as of that era, and I'm like, okay, yeah, there's definitely that sound to it. Most of the Lightning Seeds songs to me sound like New Order Junior or mm. something. <laughs> it's like a lighter, airier New yeah. Order. Yeah, <laughs> like New Order if they're trying to sound a little lovely. Yeah, yeah. My a big thought I had was that like the drums and the bass are very like Madchester clubby sounding. You know, mm-hmm. it's like very much kind of like in that milieu or whatever. But then like the melodies and all of the arpeggiation on the accordion and the strings, it's like very orc pop. It's almost kind of like, oh, this, these parts sound like they could be like like a Zombies or a Bell and Sebastian song if sure. we're talking later. But like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the production because Trouser Press called the album a disgruntled production extravaganza. <laughs> And a strange achievement, but not an unpleasant one. Mm. So I don't know if that's kind of along the lines of how you're feeling. Kind of weird and over the top, but still kind of nice. Yeah, uh, I feel that scans. It's Yeah, it's, it's very pretty sounding, but uh, it also just kind of like, oh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I should mention that the life of Riley is an expression. And I think I was mm. aware that it was an expression somewhere in my head. But if you had asked me what it means, I'm, I'm not totally sure that I could have given you a clear answer Mm, on that one yeah i've never heard it as an expression yeah so the life of riley is an expression meaning an easy carefree life Hmm. i haven't looked into the lyrics too deeply but Hmm. i assume that maybe ian brody's wishing that kind of life for his son Hmm. maybe i don't know i'm not really sure upon second listening today and i was listening more to the lyrics this time it sounds like the song more revolves around him sort of talking to himself and i assume probably his partner in raising this child it's more kind of like them sort of talking to each other and being like this is gonna be hard but hopefully it'll be you know we can do it you know it's it's, it's, it almost seems like it's sort of a pep talk though like hey we gotta get it together but we can raise this child at least that's just my my first take i like that take yeah from my own personal experience maybe his wife and him were living an easy carefree life Mm. and they're concerned that it's not going to be so easy and carefree yeah. once their kid comes along. That definitely makes and, sense. Uh, Maybe it's either like kind of sarcastic or it's just like, yeah. gotta hope it's the life of Riley. <laughs> sure, yeah. All right, so here's the weirdest thing about Lightning Seeds and Life of Riley. For whatever reason, this song has a strong connection to soccer or <laughs> football, <laughs> if you're not in the U.S. <laughs> the official video is just a bunch of people kicking goals. Mm. And the song was apparently used for a goal of the month segment on a BBC soccer program throughout hmm. most of the 90s. Hmm. Interesting. I don't huh. understand the connection at all. I mean, I assume this guy. Yeah. Is, I mean, is it's a big very, it's fan. like upbeat and peppy. So maybe, and maybe it was just because of the music video that they're like, no, it's a football oh, song. Oh, you know, like, yeah, you could be. Yeah. That's, that it, that's it interesting. Just so, came after that. And maybe just because he's like a big football fan, he's like, oh, let's pair it with some football. Yeah. I did watch the video when I listened to it earlier the video does match the song it's kind of like the energy of it it's, sure. it's like roaring crowds and it's very it's very peppy and upbeat you, you, you know, it's funny and tiny to me. And <laughs> i don't know if this is the response i was supposed to have or not but to me watching those soccer players kick goals it felt sad to me somehow i identified mm. with the goalie every <laughs> single time oh, and i don't know that's if that's the intention like if oh. obviously if you're identifying with the score it's exciting like they mm-hmm. keep kicking goals over and over yeah. again you're like yes our team is really winning here but to me it's just like 
fumbling the ball. Oops, missed that one. Mm. Let that one slip by. It, it just seemed like, look at these poor bastards that can't stop a ball, I guess. <laughs> Do you think that there's anything that like made you focus more on the goalie? Like, was, was it about the video or the content or the vibe of the song? That's a good question. It's probably just my own personal psychological trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I think I identify with the underdog. Did you, did you or the... like play defense in any other sports? Maybe it's the... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was definitely on some losing teams okay. growing up. Yeah, oh, me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we covered that one. Let's move on. We're gonna hear another number two hit. This is by Concrete Blonde. We've heard from them before as well. Mm. This is a Hollywood, California band. They were formed in 1982. At this point, they are on their fourth album, which is called Walking in London. The last time we heard from Concrete Blonde was with their Leonard Cohen cover of Everybody Knows, which was on the Pump Up the Volume original soundtrack. And now they're back with what sounds to me like a very Leonard Cohen-esque titled song, (laughs) Ghost of a Texas Ladies Man, uh, which I keep wanting to call Death of a Texas Ladies Man. It's the sequel to Death of the Texas Ladies Man. Exactly. I have no idea if this is true, but I found a random comment on a random website (laughs) and random commenter claims that this song comes from an incident that occurred in a hotel in Austin, Texas, wherein Jeanette Napolitano, the singer of Concrete Blonde, came out of the shower clad in a towel and she saw a ghost standing there. (laughs) And after she screamed, the ghost vanished. (laughs) Uh, But my favorite part of this comment was that the commenter adds, while I can see why the ghost would want to do that. I should also say the way he went about doing it was very inappropriate. <laughs> skeevy ghost. Did you get off the hook being skeevy because you're a ghost? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. I mean, just, just because you can be unperceived like anywhere doesn't mean that you like you should. Well, exactly. <laughs> I had this debate with friends many times in like middle school, high school, where we talk about what superpower you would have. Mm. And a lot of my friends would be like, I would be invisible because then I could like hang out and spy on whatever naked celebrity they had Hmm. a crush on at the time. And I'd be like, you realize that's horrendously wrong, right? Like (laughs) the fact that you're not going to get caught does not mean that it's an okay thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, like, is it okay for ghosts? (laughs) (laughs) I think the answer is probably no. I'd go on the side of no. Yeah. (laughs) But what about just scaring people in general? What's up with ghosts? <laughs> Other than the fact that they're not real. Yeah, has there ever been like a treatise on the morality of being a ghost? That... I, you know, I'd be interested. And by the way, I like to say ghosts are not real because they're not. But my brother is a firm believer in ghosts hmm. and uh, claims that the house we grew up in was haunted. And he saw ghosts on many occasions. Hmm. Well, we're going to listen to the song Ghost of a Texas Ladies Man. Here it is. I reached for my towel on the floor. I didn't think it was exactly where I'd laid it. You don't scare me, you don't scare me, I said. Do whatever it was floating in the air above my bed. He knew I'd understand. He was the ghost of a Texas ladies' man.
it feels very much like a novelty song in a way that I'm not super familiar with the band Concrete Blonde, but they seem like more of just kind of like a serious indie rock band. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is like kind of like doing an outlaw country spoof, but still with like a lot of the indie rock kind of sounds, you know, there's a lot of like chorus guitar and like flangey stuff happening. I was like, this doesn't sound like country, but... Yeah, obviously the lyrics, it's kind of funny. That's yeah. like, oh. oh yeah, I totally <laughs> agree. It's looking up mean, with a ghost. <laughs> if it's not a novelty, it's something close to a novelty mm-hmm. song. Yeah, it's it just seemed seemed absurdly silly to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a, in a necessarily bad way. It yeah. seemed like the band was having fun with it, mm-hmm. you know. But I can see why this one hasn't really stuck around as a classic, mm-hmm. you know. Like <laughs> when people talk about Concrete Blonde, I think it's usually not this song mm-hmm. that people are referencing. What did it kick off with? Was there a gunshot or a whip crack or something? Yeah, it's like a whip crack. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought the song was going to end like a minute before it did. Mm-hmm. And they just kept going with the chorus. And then the instruments drop out. And then it's just like ghostly voices. Yeah, spooky acapella yeah. ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know. I kind of liked. but uh, That was kind of a cool ending. I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of this cool choral ending yeah. to like a very silly song. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Did you watch the video before? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's decked out in their cowboy clothes <laughs> and whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess my take on the ghost is slightly different. Uh, having listened to the lyrics more carefully this time, mm. right? And it really brings to mind that if someone is creeping on you and they're unattractive, they're a creep. But if they're really hot, then it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have you heard things, something to that effect before? Yeah. That's kind of the vibe I get here. Like the ghost of the Texas ladies man, he knew that she wasn't going to mind. He knows he's a good looking ghost. Hmm. If he was an unattractive ghost that got, you know, negative responses from the ladies, he might stop doing it. But, um, uh, Every time he does this kind of thing, he gets the positive response. And hmm. it seems like she liked it. She was into it. I almost kind of imagine, too, that maybe it was something where she, she thought she saw a ghost or maybe really actually saw a ghost and then was trying to, like, write a song about it, but wanting to, like, put a positive spin on it. It's right. like, like, oh, this is really freaky, but what if it were, what if it were actually sexy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. The anonymous comment said she screamed and it disappeared. But that's not how the song goes, right? Yeah. She says, you don't scare me. <laughs> Now let's do it, <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like that she's taking taking a real life event and, uh, well, sort of a real life event, <laughs> and she's giving a little twist, making the story more interesting. And I think that's one of the things I like about it is, you know, whenever you can tell a story, even if it's a simple story, like I got out of the shower, saw a ghost, and then had sex with a ghost. I don't know. I, I think it, it makes songs more memorable and it makes yeah. them fun if you can kind of follow along with the, the story. Yeah, it's got a memorable hook and uh, it, and it's kind of fun. Like it, it sort of turns it on its head. It's like, oh, ghosts are scary things. You got to run away from, you know, it's, it's always kind of funny when it's like, oh, the ghost is friendly or the yeah, ghost well, is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this case, friendly and sexy. Yeah. So I think Concrete Blonde are going to be back on the modern rock charts a few more times, but nothing else is going to reach quite this high. Not, not as high as number two. So as far as like their big commercial popularity, they're kind of running their course at this point. All right. The next band we're going to hear from is called Teenage Fan Club. They were formed in Scotland in 1989. And I think this band is notable for having three lead singers, Norman Blake, Raymond McGinley, and Gerard Love. It's also one of those bands where like they all write songs mm-hmm. too, right? Yeah, that's right. In 1991, they released their second album, Bandwagon-esque, and this album received a lot of critical acclaim. 
It famously topped Spin Magazine's Best Albums of 1991 list, beating out Nirvana's Nevermind and a bunch of other stuff. And it has subsequently been named one of those top 500 albums of all time or 1,001 albums you have to listen to before you mm-hmm. die. Or it's, it's on a bunch of those lists. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the middle of the pack on the, all of them. The but critical still. darling. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I read that Kurt Cobain frequently cited Teenage Fan Club as a, a band that he liked and once called them the best band in the world. Hmm. There's Kurt Cobain-related facts quite a bit on this show. Mm-hmm. I think it must have to do with the number of times he was interviewed uh, yeah, compared I feel to other like he people. Yeah, just kind of had so many <laughs> press interviews around that time. Yeah, and I think he really liked to, to well, he share. Liked, yeah, he liked to promote bands. Mm-hmm. He liked to... Because I, I definitely feel like I've heard that, like, you know, best band ever quote from Kurt Cobain about a lot of different bands. Sure. I'm sure he loved all those bands, sure. you know, like Shonen Knife or like Daniel Johnston or, you yeah. Know, yeah, a lot of those people. Anyway, we're going to hear a song called The Concept. This was the second single from Bandwagon-esque. The first one was Star Sign, which hit number four in January of 1992. And we didn't get to hear it back then, so we're going to hear this one instead. The Concept reached (laughs) number 12 on the Modern Rock Charts. Here it is. I like this song a lot. I think it's one of my favorite songs on the album. Mm. It just has a really good sound. It's pretty fun to sing along to. There's nice vocal harmonies. But man, the lyrics are stupid. Yeah, I was thinking about it too. I was like, the song sounds great. The lyrics are very dumb and very cliche. It's just that this is just describing a cool girl. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that is the intention. I I was reading about it and they're saying we're we're singing about some girl and she's really cool. Maybe Mm -hmm. she's too cool for her own good. But but is she? I mean, the what's is it the opening line? She wears denim wherever she goes. Yeah, <laughs> which I feels very dated. But yeah, it's... and then but she's gonna buy a record by the status quo. Like, is that cool? I don't think that's not cool. That's like saying I'm gonna go buy a Yes album or something, isn't it? <laughs> like, maybe it's so uncool it's cool again. Yeah, I don't I'm not know. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what. <laughs> or maybe uh, maybe <laughs> in Scotland, to... maybe in Scotland, that's a really cool band. Mm. But it's one of those things where, like, if the music sounds good, I will definitely, like, forgive bad lyrics. Exactly, yeah. But, yeah, like, sitting down and really listening to them, it's kind of like, oh, is there a little... <laughs> <laughs> the music's good enough that you don't really care. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, if I'm going to be naming my favorite band in the entire world or, like, the album that I think is the greatest album ever, I kind of want it to have the whole package. You yeah. know, I want it to sound good and mm-hmm. I want the lyrics to... Maybe yeah, because sometimes it, it can be distracting, mm-hmm. if, even if the music is really good. If, like, you suddenly notice this lyric, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but still, it's a good song. It's a good album. Yeah. I really like hearing these guys sing mm-hmm. all together. Or the cover art for this album, I don't want to be mean, but it's kind of a terrible drawing. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really cheesy, really cheap to me, but it's a <laughs> yellow bag with a dollar sign on it on a pink background. The thing is, after this album came out, Gene Simmons from the band Kiss contacted the record company because he owns the rights to the money bag symbol. What? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Is he just suing every cartoon maker now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how this is possible even, right? Yeah, like he's, he's such a bizarre trademark. He how definitely he didn't that? come up with the idea for it. Like we've been seeing money bag symbols going yeah. way back. But, but I guess he was the one who trademarked it. You know, yeah, he's exactly. famously litigious. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, Geffen, I think, had to send him a check. Pay him some money for using the money bags. <laughs> That's so weird. One thing I noticed listening to this song, and actually quite a few songs on the album, is... They're wearing their big star influence mm. on their sleeve pretty heavily. Yeah. There's like very specific riffs and very specific lines that mm-hmm. seem like they were lifted straight out of some big star yeah. songs. And even the way the harmonies are constructed mm-hmm. is very big star. Yeah. So if I guess if any listeners are into Teenage Fan Club and haven't checked out Big Star, yeah, probably do yourself a favor and go listen to some of that. The end of the song, it's, I guess, kind of bold, really. About two thirds of the way through, the lyrics stop and it's just kind of like lighters in the air outro. Yeah, and is it different chord progression? It just mm-hmm. moves on to this yeah. third part that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It almost feels like it could be the end of like a Leonard Skinner ballad <laughs> to me or something. I don't yeah. Yeah, there's something about it that makes me think, oh, this is kind of like the indie rock version of like November Rain. Okay. It just kind of sure. you know, goes into that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Like, syrupy emotional ending. Okay, we've got one more band. We're going to go a little lower onto the charts and we're going to hear from They Might Be Giants. They Might Be Giants started out as a couple of guys named John from Brooklyn, New York. They formed in 1982. Are you a They Might Be Giants fan? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I came to them a little later than when this actually came out, but I was cognizant of them originally from the Tiny Tunes episodes that mm. had some of the songs from Flood on them. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, didn't really listen to albums, I think, until maybe late middle school, high school, and then got really, in, really into it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say the same for me. I had a couple of friends that were into them, probably through their older siblings. Mm. I definitely saw the Tiny Tunes <laughs> episode. And when I was first buying CDs, you know, I did whatever, BMG Music Club mm. or whatever, where you get 10 for the price of one. Yeah. And then they start charging you a full price and <laughs> yeah. your parents get mad. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Apollo 18 and Flood, both by They Might Be Giants, were two of my very first CDs that I oh, ever bought. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I listened to them a lot mm. back in late middle school and early high school. <laughs> so this is their fourth album we're going to hear from. This is 1992. The album's called Apollo 18. There was no Apollo 18 mission. I think there was there was going to be. There's a planned mission, but it never happened. So, you know, I, don't know, I think they're just being silly. Yeah, I really always sure. assumed it was, yeah, yeah. Just, just the fact that it, it was a mission that never existed. <laughs> yeah. The band went down to NASA, I guess, looking for some archival photos to possibly use. And while they were down there, they're talking to some people. They're like, oh, yeah, we're in a band. We're doing this thing. We're going to get some pictures of a space shuttle or something to put on our cover. And NASA was like, well, did you know 1992 is International Space Year? (laughs) And would you like to be the musical ambassadors of International Space Year? And they're like, we don't know what that entails, but yes, please. (laughs) Sign me up. Yeah. So um, I don't know that they actually did anything. As hmm. the musical ambassadors, other huh. than maybe mention this fact in a few interviews here and there. I know that's the music video for this song, too. It has like a lot of like astronaut footage. You're right. There are some, some astronauts walking around, yeah. 
We're going to hear a song called The Statue Got Me High. This was the lead single, and it reached number 24 on the modern rock charts. The statue made me Yeah, it's, I guess the first thing that stood out to me is I forgot how much space stuff was in that video. Big boxes with planets on them, like a picture of the planet and then it's labeled like Saturn, Jupiter, yeah, yeah. some astronaut skateboarders going through <laughs> a tunnel of some kind. Uh, I wonder if they felt an obligation to NASA. Like, was this their original idea for a music video or were they like, man, they named us... Yeah, or I wonder, wonder if uh, there was something in that contract they oh, yeah. signed to become yeah. musical ambassadors. <laughs> They're like, what did we sign ourselves up for? Now we, <laughs> now we have to put an Empire State Building rocket ship into uh, our video. <laughs> I was not aware at all of them being ambassadors for space for 1992. So it's interesting to listen to the song with that in mind. But um, yeah, I must wonder, is there supposed to be something in here that has something to do with international space? If, yeah. if that's worth reading into it, because uh, I mean, mainly it's a very typical John Linnell song in that it's less a story than it is sort of like a picture. It's a weird painting. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a sort of weird Hieronymus Bosch painting of a guy, you know, becoming engaged and then immolated by a statue, I guess. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think you can cast a lot of different interpretations onto it. <laughs> right. And I'll say as a middle schooler, I was felt a little uncomfortable with the song because I wasn't quite sure if the statue getting him high was a drug reference. I thought it probably wasn't, but drugs were bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is a song I listened to a lot in high school while high. So <laughs> yeah, I figured it was probably both, I guess, because there's a lot of intense lyrics about like the, the truth is where the sculptor chipped away the lie and stuff like that about like this. The statue is just somehow overwhelming it's mm-hmm. and uh and so i think a lot of this you know high like being high you, you are kind of freaked out and overwhelmed sure. <laughs> usually. yeah yeah um but also just like oh something that's elevated me this is what happens when like a piece of art just like totally like amazes and destroys you mm-hmm. right and I, I think that is the intention more or less i read an interview with john leno and he said basically something to the effect of the song is about having an epiphany mm-hmm. and what he liked about it was like someone's having their mind blown by something totally mundane. Mm. But also, I think worth mentioning is that when the song was originally written, the dummy lyrics or the dummy title was The Apple of My Eye. Yeah, I wonder how much of it was intentional about like, oh, I feel this is about something being the apple of my eye or if it was just like, okay, here's a cliche that fits. Right. Yeah, it's got the right number it's of syllables. mystery. In it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think in the context of all of their other singles from like leading up to this and then just generally from that era, this one was just not quite as good for me Mm. as some of the other ones. So Mm. if I'm thinking like Anna Ng and Birdhouse and Your Soul, Mm. and it seems much sillier to me now, but I was really into Istanbul, not Constantinople back (laughs) when I was, you know, a kid. To me, it's like a a B or B plus where those Mm. other ones were A's. 
Because I definitely kind of think about it as one of those that's kind of on par with those John Linnell songs in the same vibe. And I, I definitely really liked The Statue Got Me High a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good. It's just, I, I, I can't even figure out what it is that for me just mm. seemed a little off. And I will say that I think the follow-up single, I Palindrome I, hmm. for me, somehow, like, that was the one that really hit me from yeah, this album. In spite of essentially nonsense lyrics where yeah. they're just, <laughs> you know, singing things that are the same backward mm. and forward. Somehow the melody on that one just really hit me in a way that his best songs do. Mm. And this one didn't quite get there. Yeah. I think what I really like about this song is it has some of the best counterpoint with like the accordion and the baritone saxophone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the most iconic things about They Might Be Giants is Linnell's, you know, <laughs> accordion right. and saxophone. Yeah. And yeah, I think the way it kind of intertwines around everything in this song is particularly emblematic of that sound in a way that i really enjoy and i think there's a lot of it too just with like flansberg's really crunchy guitar playing it's like oh this is like the archetypal tmbg song where it's, it flirts with like annoying like there's things about it that's just like sound irritating it's on the edge of irritating but also like very poppy at the same time mm-hmm. and that's what i love so much about <laughs> they might be giants yeah so this was kind of the end of phase one of They Might Be Giants, I guess, or maybe phase two, I guess, depends on how you want to count it. But I think after this album was done and they went on tour for this record, they started incorporating a full band and then they never used a drum machine again, really, after this mm-hmm. point. So for their first four albums, it was it was the two guys in the drum machine. And I still liked them after they, mm-hmm. you know, they got the full band, but it was never quite the same for me after this. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm in the same boat. They really rose to the challenge of just like, well, what do we just among ourselves play and how do we sculpt songs around that Yeah, that are actually amazingly complex and and also just like very, very pop forward. Mm-hmm. Going into this record, the record label wanted to get Elvis Costello to produce it, hmm. but the band wanted to produce it themselves. And, you know, that doesn't seem necessarily crazy to me. Because if you feel like you've reached that point where you know what the sound is that you're looking for mm-hmm. and you've got the skills for it, you know, I can see why you would want to produce it yourself. But yeah. also, it seems almost shocking to turn down Elvis Costello if he's, yeah. if he's on board to produce your album. Yeah. And even just from like the marketing perspective, it's well, like yeah. everyone knows his name. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, like... I guess they spent so many years like just doing everything themselves. They also kind of get it. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But I I am always curious with things like this. Like, what mm. would that sound like? Yeah. If we could somehow go back in time and hear the Elvis Costello version. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we heard four songs. I think there was a, a lot of variety there. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about your projects and what's going on and where people can hear them? And My, I guess, solo slash sometimes I play with a live band project is called Dr. Something. And it's just like DR something <laughs> everywhere. There's like a drsomething.com. So if you're interested in that, I guess that way can you give us like the brief description of what it sounds like yeah so it's sort of like a chamber pop kind of sound i most of the songs are based around keyboards piano and do a lot of like clarinet and a lot of like layering of vocals so it's very like melodic music with sort of chamber pop elements cool yeah any other projects people should check out it's a now defunct project but you can find music online for all i feel is yes which is a band that i played in for a while and we have a bunch of music up online. Just search for All I Feel Is Yes. Okay. <laughs> that should be up there. Great. Should have like psych rock, if you like that. Yeah. Are you a real doctor? No, 
I'm I'm not a real doctor and uh, not a real something. I'm just just an ephemeral presence. Okay. Well, very, very cool. Allison, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks Uh, for having me. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. We'll see you next time in April of 1992. Have a good one. Bye.